When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Happy Thursday, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Um, I took off this last Monday from creating a video and I have to be honest, it was really nice because it's one of those situations where every once in a while, Sean and I will be running late on video content, meaning like I've recorded a couple and those ones are being edited and they're going out and then I realize we're out of them and I'm like, shit, I have to film another one. Anyway, I didn't feel rushed. And that was really nice. So thank you so much for your understanding. Thank you guys so much for all the love that I got on the video two weeks ago. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes I just, I get overwhelmed. I'm human too, but we're doing our best, right? And I've been making up uh, it a priority to take time off and to do things that are good for me, you know, practicing what I preach and all that stuff. Okay, enough about me. Let's get into your question. So today we have 10 questions. And the first question is, hi, Katie, can you talk about whether it's more important to prioritize processing past trauma or working through issues in the present? It feels more important to prioritize the present, but I also know that unresolved past trauma is a common thread that makes my life more challenging. This is a great question. For example, it feels more pressing to talk about my inability to commit to a long-term partner who is wonderful and loving. But I know my commitment issues stem from feeling unlovable and damaged because of trauma. This is just one example of a very long list. Given the impact my past has had on my present, how do I strike a balance between working through them both in therapy? This is, I, I, like I said, it's a wonderful question. Um, and I also want to let you know if my voice sounds a little bit hoarse, it's because I spent last Thursday and Friday like six or seven hours a day doing my audiobook. So, if you are the audiobook type of person, my book Traumatized will be read by yours truly, and you can pre-order yours now on Amazon. You can click the link in the description, and even though you can't get the audio version of the first two chapters, you can purchase the audiobook, and in that link, you can then let them know you purchased it and get the first two chapters, uh, you like a written version, so you can read them. Um, right away. So if you want to get some early access, unfortunately, I know a lot of people are like, how come I can't get the audiobook early? But sorry, that's just not how it works, unfortunately. But um, anyways, enough about that. Okay, back to this question. Now I get asked this a lot and it's something, it, it's interesting, okay? So the question really is like, which do we prioritize, past trauma or current issues that I'm having? And the truth is with my patients, the balance I strike is first, having some tools to help us manage in the present. Now, we're not going to be able to process it through. Honestly, I believe, and people can disagree with this, I believe our present stuff doesn't need to be processed through because it's just a symptom of the deeper issue. It's like when I talk about that tree, right? The root of your issue is past trauma. But what we're seeing today is all the leaves and flowers on top of that tree, all the symptoms. Now, those we can't really process them through. We could dig into them, which would help us realize and have further evidence to support the fact that yes, it is the trauma that's the root, but that's really it. 
What we're looking for is coping skills for right now. And so obviously the example you gave was your inability to commit to a long-term partner. I would argue that that's not really the symptom. The symptom would be whatever you do that prevents you from committing. So are the symptoms that you uh, maybe aren't, you have like social anxiety and you don't want to date or do you sabotage the relationship in one way or another? Or, um, you know, what is it that we do? I'd be more curious about those symptoms rather than this this bigger issue that is, you know, I'm, I'm not able to commit to a long-term partner. Does that make sense? Because there are things that you're doing they're causing that to happen. So with that in mind, the coping skills could be uh, things to calm our system down if anxiety is the issue, right? If we feel really anxious and so we're not really able to go out and go on dates or we like freeze and can't talk on a date, are there things we can do to calm our system? Can we practice those ahead of time so we can put ourselves out there? Um, You know, that would be one example. Or is it that we sabotage? Like, can we identify some of those key things that we do to sabotage? Is it maybe like not opening up, pushing them away, not being available, getting too, you know, too much too fast, and then doing the abort? Like, what is it that we do? Um, And once we recognize that, can we track back and notice it earlier so that we can maybe talk about it in therapy, figure out what that fear, like, obviously, you know, it's the trauma, but I'm saying like, what is the fear? Can we maybe take a break from seeing them? Like, oh, I'm, I'm busy this week, but can we get together next week? We space it out. So we have time to like calm our nerves and stop ourselves from doing the sabotaging behavior. Like what's going on? So all of that to say with my patients, I try to find coping skills to help us manage for now. And once we have some coping skills that work, then we dig into the trauma. So that's the like, how I prioritize. Really, the priority is processing the trauma, but we can't just ignore the symptoms because they're affecting us right now, right? And they're messing up our life today. And so we need to have some ways to better deal. It'd be like my eating disorder patients, obviously, and this is a little different because there's their like physical health implications and we can worry about someone, you know, having really severe things happen. But I will have them see a dietitian and we'll have some ways to try to better cope in the moment. I might even, you know, put them into a treatment center and stuff like that. But in the in the outpatient process, it would be more having them realize their main triggers and ways that they can calm without using food, using impulse logs and things like that. While in therapy, we start digging into the deeper stuff. Does that make sense? So that's how I prioritize. It's not one versus the other. It's how do we manage these while we dig deeper because the thing to know is that if we don't have coping skills to help us on those symptoms when we dig into the trauma they're only going to get worse those symptoms are going to be exacerbated and become almost impossible to ignore right because they're they're our way of coping a lot of times and the sabotage and relationships that you're seeing whatever form it's taking is is like you said it's it's like a stemming from feeling unlovable and damaged because of trauma so it's all coming from that So if we're digging into that, that's only going to get worse. And that's why we need coping skills before then we dig into. We might need to edit those coping skills or add some more or um, do them more frequently. You know, there's a lot of different things that we're going to have to do to help us manage. But I'm here to tell you that you can manage and you can process through and it does get better. Okay, I hope that helps and I hope that makes sense. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And this question reads, 
Hey, Katie, can you just replay social situations over and over in your head without having social anxiety? Hmm, good question. I often find myself ruminating after socializing on what has happened, what I have said, projected or presented. I'll rerun the encounter in my head and comb through to make sure that I wasn't offensive or rude, etc. I wonder about what they think of my image, if they think I've put on weight, looked tired, tried too hard with my appearance, etc. Upon reflection, I realize I do this with most of my social interactions, whether in real life or on social media, and how much I replay the events varies. I'm afraid of being judged. I know, or I'm afraid of being judged, I know, but isn't everyone. I think it's social anxiety because I do enjoy people's company, though I do need time to recharge, but I don't know how quote unquote normal this is. Thanks for helping me get through my weeks. Of course, I'm glad I can be here for you. Now, this is a great question. There's lots of reasons we could be doing this. And I want you all to know that this is way, way, way more common than I think we give credit to. So, okay. This replaying of social situations over and over, wondering, you know, if we sounded okay, if they if they liked what we said, you know, if we what they thought about our appearance, like all of that, like running is usually anxiety driven. Now, by like keeping that in mind, and some someone left a comment to this effect below this too, is that there are a lot of anxiety disorders, okay? A lot of my patients do have social anxiety, and I'll dig into that a little bit, but it could also be part of our OCD. Now, for those of you who don't know, OCD is like an anxiety-based disorder. Um, however, it would be, this would probably be what I would assume is more pure OOCD, me- meaning that the compulsions, like the obsessions and compulsions happen in our head, not making it any less real or less OCD-based. It just means there may not be any actual physical behaviors that we do as a result of it. It's all done in our head. And that means that while we're replaying these social situations, and then we might have to do certain things mentally, like next time I would say this, that, or the other, right? We correct behavior or we we do certain things, think a certain way, or you know, um, that could be part of our pure OOCD. So it could be part of that. However, I even had a patient in my private practice who used to, I think I've talked about her before, she used to replay every conversation that she had during that day and it made it impossible for her to go to sleep. And it was definitely anxiety-based. And once we got her, for her, in her case, even doing stuff with me, like any actual uh, tools or techniques or behavioral changes was impossible because of her anxiety. So we got her on some medication that finally worked. Then she was able to use some tools and we were able to better manage it. But the the social anxiety... Um, because it says without having social anxiety. So that's that's the most common, okay? But if we don't have it, if we don't think it's actual social anxiety, it could be just due to our lack of self-confidence. And that can come from a lot of different places. That could be depression. Again, that could be social anxiety, but it could even be due to trauma in our past because all we know how much shame loves to tell us something's wrong with us or we're broken or nobody really likes us or right. It just like shit talks us all the time. So it could be some of those things. Now you would have to kind of, cause you said you like you reflect and you realize you do it with most social interactions, whether in real life or social media. Um, but it's not, not to say it isn't normal. Like I said, it's very common, but you're saying, I'm, I'm afraid of being judged, I know, but isn't everyone. Not to this level. Now, the difference between, I always like to put things in perspective where, sure, everyone is afraid of being judged. Like no one likes to be judged. 
but I personally don't worry about it very much at all, honestly. I mean, maybe maybe it's just me, and I. it's been a while since I've given a lot of fucks about what people think, but I think that also comes from being online and being shit-talked all the time, so you're just like, whatever. But if if our worry about being judged is getting in the way of us being able to function, right? It's like you're spending all this time, you're ruminating, and it's like affecting your mood and your ability to do other things. That's when it's a problem. So a lot of people don't like to be judged. And we might leave a social situation thinking, ugh, I didn't do very well. And like, I thought that person was friendly, but I don't know if they really liked me. And then we just move on, right? But if we're unable to move on, it's a problem. And it could come out of, like I said, trauma, depression, anxiety, honestly, a, a, a lot of different mental health issues. Um, hmm. Those are just my thoughts. I mean, I guess you'd have to be a little bit more curious and talk with your therapist about it because it could be a lot of different things. I even have patients with ADHD and I actually did a video about this rejection sensitive dysphoria. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what's going on here, but you might want to rewatch that video. That happens with a lot of people with ADHD. Also people with on the autism spectrum, those autistic people have it a lot where we're, we're super, super sensitive to any perceived rejection. Now, it doesn't sound like that's what's necessarily happening because you're not like getting upset about it and like lashing out. Um, you're more ruminating about it. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there as well. But I, I would I would be curious, like if you were in my office telling me about this, I would ask you like how how confident you feel at school or work or what kind of, I'd have you do some thought tracking too, to see what your conversation that you're having with yourself is like, because I think it could be some of that and some of that shit talking that you're doing that's causing you to worry so much. And I would want to push back and have you, you know, try to use some bridge statements to make that better. Um, but again, this is very common and it could come from a lot of, I think the reason it is so common is because it can come from a lot of different mental illnesses or again, not even a mental illness, not something diagnosable, more just mental health concern. Like you just shit talk yourself and you don't have any confidence. And so we need to figure out if that's coming from something bigger, like a trauma or, or if it's just, you know, we struggle to think positively about ourselves in social situations. So yeah. Sorry, I don't have like an answer like this is it. But those are the things it could be. Anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, um, and under anxiety disorders, it could be OCD, could be lack of self-confidence, could be a trauma response and a shame spiral kind of thing. Um, yeah. But what do you think? Let me know. Let me know what, because it sounds like you've done some reflection. So I want you to keep kind of digging in and be a little bit more curious about it too, so we can learn more. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And I can already tell my voice is like affected by the fact that I did the audiobook. God, it's so hard to talk for that many hours a day. Oh, and I, I can I can tell my voice is, is gravelly. Okay. Question number three. Hi Katie, how do you know if you're being re-traumatized in your therapy sessions? It's a good question. I've been working through traumas in therapy and I've been unable to stay present. Oh, too much is too much too fast. They started as dissociation in session to now having full-on panic attacks in session. It's gotten so bad that I start to want to self-harm to make it stop and end up scratching myself in session. Now I'm at the point where I feel like the office and just speaking to my therapist, who I like a lot and have been seeing for over two years, is leading to me having a panic attack. Where do I go from here? Thanks for all you do. Okay, just from reading this question, I'm like, you need to take a break. Not from therapy, but from 
actual trauma work. I would tell your therapist this has become overwhelming and it's it's impairing your your ability to function. And so you need to take a break from the trauma work because for instance, when I work with my patients on trauma, even just in the talk therapy space where where I spend, you know, that's what I offer to my patients, we'll do like a longer session. A lot of times I'll have them do like a double one week about the trauma and then the next week is not or off. It's like on and off, on and off. And in the off weeks, we could talk more about coping skills, grounding techniques, checking in on their functionality, if they're able to shower, do what they need to do, all that stuff. Because that helps me know if if we're moving too fast or not. And it sounds like you are not functioning. And so I would tell, first of all, tell your therapist this is happening. Tell them that you feel like this, you know, you just like, like you expressed it to me, you know, it started with dis- dissociation. Now I'm having panic attacks in session. And even just like going to the office or talking to you is is causing panic attacks. And so I think I just need to take a break on the trauma processing. And I would encourage you to probably take two to four weeks off each week checking in. So like if we take next week off, then the week after, I want you to check in with her. And I want you to notice how you're doing. Are the panic attacks ceasing? Because now we have another symptom, right? We've gone too fast. We've done too much too fast. And so we need to like stop that from, stop therapy from being such a trauma trigger because our brain is associating it with the trauma when it doesn't need to be, but it believes it to be so because our system continually got too overwhelmed. And that's what Like as a therapist, that's the tricky part with trauma work is because we want to push you hard enough that you are doing the work that is life-changing and healing, but we don't want to push you too much that we cause this to happen. And usually I notice that if my patients are dissociating like session after session after session, like three sessions in a row, I'm like, hey, 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 let's take a break. But not all therapists notice and she may not know that this is happening. So let her know, take a break get some coping skills to help ground you, soothe your system, then slowly come back into it. Now, I would just let her know that you've been working through and you you feel like you're being re-traumatized because it's like you're dissociating too much so, so that she can make note that whatever she was just doing and the pace that she was keeping is too fast. And it's okay to say that. I think the pace we, we were keeping was too fast. It's your treatment. It's your mental health. And we don't want to make it worse. So that's that's really... And it is tricky. That's why being a therapist is kind of an art form because we have to challenge our patients, but we don't want to challenge them too much, right? We don't want to scare them away or re-traumatize them or make them feel like we don't understand where they're at. And so I know it's tricky, but please speak up because it's your treatment. Your therapist will find that balance with you, but we can't find the balance if you don't let us know. You know what I mean? If we don't know it's too much for you and we're not enough, apparently she's not that good at reading the signals from you to know you're in full-blown panic or, you know, struggling to stay present. Um, So we're gonna have to let her know since she can't just see it on you. Okay? You got this. It does get better. Trust me. Taking those breaks and then coming back and having some more coping skills, you might want to build up on some more resources so you can stay present. That will all really, really help you. Okay, let's move on to question number four. It says, hello, Katie. Well, hello. Please, can you give me, blah, blah, blah. Let me start over. Please, can you give examples of what less severe dissociation is? Mm -hmm, Of course. I feel numb or empty quite a lot of the time. And like there's a part of me missing. That kind of sounds like depression, but we'll get into it. When in therapy, my mind can go blank too. And I literally have no idea what to say. 
I always thought of dissociation as when you felt like you were looking at yourself from the outside or when you went for long periods of time without remembering what had happened. That can be it too. I didn't realize there are less severe ways of dissociation. Thank you for all you do. Of course, of course. Okay, so let's dig into this. Now, your mind going blank in therapy is pretty normal. And I like to think of that as either being a symptom of overwhelm or a symptom of depression. But when we dissociate on like a, and I'd love to hear from you guys too, if you have experiences with this, I don't necessarily think that this is dissociation because low grade dissociation to me is what, um, what I would call spacing out. Now, has anybody ever been, because I even do this, like you get in a really stressful situation. Let's say you're at work and I don't know, maybe a presentation is due and you thought you had another week, but it turns out it's due this week. And while you're working on that, or even like, you know, right when you find out, you can do this where you space out and it feels good. Like you don't want to stop spacing out, but you're like, boo, and you, your eyes just lock in and like you zone, right? We've all done that. I consider that a very low grade version of dissociation. Then moving into kind of maladaptive daydreaming, where we can daydream for a period of time and not want to come back to reality because the daydreaming just feels so much more comfortable, right? And maladaptive daydreaming can get more severe, but I'm just talking like on a spectrum. If we're doing that a little bit, it's like spacing out, but then taking it to another level where we're daydreaming. And if any of, any of you don't know maladaptive daydreaming, we create like storylines and people in it, and it can feel very much like our reality. So just FYI. Um, so those are more of the low grade. What's happening to you, I would, I mean, if you feel like you're disconnected, because you said numb and empty quite a lot of the time, and like there's a part of you missing, I really think that's depression. I don't know, but hear me out. A lot of my patients, because for those of you who don't understand depression or haven't experienced it, it, it can feel almost like I mean, a lot of the symptoms are very similar to my patients who've been suicidal. Again, not all depressed people are suicidal and not all suicidal people are depressed, but that numbness, that disconnection is usually due to the fact that we just feel so terrible and we don't even, honestly, we don't even know how we feel. Let's just be honest. It's just shitty. If anybody asks how we feel, it'd be like shitty. We just feel so shitty that it's better for us just to like cut it off and not pay attention. And so we can feel really numb and empty and it's because depression kind of takes away any of our hope. It makes us see everything like through these lenses of negativity, or I guess that's the best way to put it is negativity. Cause that's really what it is. It's like nothing looks good. Nothing sounds like fun. Fun doesn't exist. Joy isn't around and doesn't exist either. It's more like sadness, uh, disappointment, things not working out. We can even ruminate on things that didn't work out in the past. It can just be really I don't know, really hope destroying. And so because it can feel so uncomfortable, we can numb out and we can feel empty because we can't tap into anything, right? We can't feel anything because we're just disconnected. And the emptiness comes from not even feeling like we know who we are or what we like or any of that stuff, right? We can be so disconnected almost as a way of like saving ourselves from the depressive thoughts. Now this can happen as part of dissociation, but that just doesn't seem like what's going on here. I could be wrong. Again, this is just my opinion. Um, yeah, but the mind going blank, I would be curious, I guess. My question for you is in therapy, when your mind goes blank, do you feel unable to connect to your therapist? Like, can you make eye contact with, I think it's a her, 
or does it not say? I don't think it says. But can you make eye contact with your therapist? Do you feel like you're watching yourself a little bit? Are you spaced out in another land? Like what's going on when you said, you know, um, your mind goes blank? Because I've had a lot of patients where it's like I ask them how they're doing and they just legitimately don't know and they don't know how to answer. And that is more, I think, just that disconnection that we can feel, which can come along with anxiety, depression, a lot of mental health issues. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't, just based on this question, I do not think it's less severe dissociation. I think it's, you know, a different mental illness. Something's happening that's that's causing you to disconnect and be feel like you can't come up with anything. Now, I can see where you would think that disconnection means dissociation, but if you can make eye contact or if you feel like you're there, you're, you just can't connect to your thoughts. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that sounds weird, but it's like, you know where you are, you know what's happening. It, you you feel the chair under you. You can make eye contact with your therapist. That's not dissociation. That would just be disconnection from our feelings and our thoughts, which is very common in a lot of mental illnesses. I hope that clears it up and I hope that makes sense. Okay, let's move on to question number five. Get a little hit of coffee here. Okay, it says... Hi, Katie. I'm struggling to know when I should take a break from therapy. I am very much a perfectionist, which leads to me uh, feeling like I constantly need to be bettering myself. Ooh, join the club. Right after my sessions, I immediately start thinking about things I need to work on and talk about in the next session. I never don't have anything to talk about because the perfectionist in me can always find something that needs work. Interesting. I love the growth that comes from therapy, but I'm not sure if it's healthy to always be seeking out things to work on. Hmm. Thank you so much for all that you do. Now, um, there's a comment, there are two comments on this, but I'll get into those in just a second. So there's still work to be done in therapy. Yes. And the work would be, because my therapist did this with me. So welcome to this discomfort. Jump right in. It sucks, but it's really helpful. So for probably a year or more, my therapist used to give me homework. She'd be very clear about what I should be doing. And then right before session would end, she'd say, and I don't want you to complete all the homework. I want you just to pick some stuff to not fully finish. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, your homework is to not really do it all the way. Like, I want you to put it off as long as possible. And I want you to not finish it. And I was like, well, what? I was like, well, how much don't I finish? She's like, I don't know. It's up to you. Figure it out. I was like, you motherfucker, are you serious? So that's my homework for you. I want you to not do some stuff. I want you to have that list of stuff you want to work on in session. And I want you to leave it somewhere. Not in, not, don't take it to session. Hmm. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Then this was the shitty part. Well, I mean, that was shitty enough for me, but then the shitty part is what comes up for you when you can't pretend to be in complete control of things. That was at least what it was for me. But for you, maybe it's, the question is, what comes up for you when you can't pretend to be perfect and pretend to be working on things so much? You don't need to take a break from therapy. You need to take a break from trying to do therapy perfectly. What would it mean if you didn't do therapy just right? Because you need to let your therapist know this is happening, by the way, if they don't already recognize this. I smell it out like a mile away with my patients because I went through it on my own. This was back, God, in high school it started. I remember my therapist telling me, and this was like, 
I still had cell phones. I know people might be like, people had cell phones back then? Yes, we did. This was um, probably two, 2001. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, part of it was just turning my phone off and not being reachable and not checking to see if someone had tried to get a hold of me. She was like, you need to just not be reachable. And then she's like, also, like, kind of write about what comes up for you. But like, I don't know, maybe don't do it all the time. Like, maybe just do it like once and then like half finish. It was like such like not <laughs> direct enough homework. Ugh, it drove me crazy. And then, you know, anyway, so we dug into that. But for maybe for you, it's just about like not doing therapy perfectly. Or what if you came late to session once? Hmm. I had, I gave my patient homework like that once and that took her a while to do. I was like, I'd like you to be like mm, a little bit late. And she's like, like a minute or two. And I was like, I don't know. What's a little bit late to you? And she's like, a little bit late is if I show up right on time. And I was like, oh, okay. Then a little bit more late than that. Like you're getting here when session has supposed to have started. That took months to get her to do. I would like you to do that. And then I'd like you to talk to your therapist about what comes up for you. I know it's uncomfortable, but without the discomfort, we won't be able to make change. And so I know, trust me personally, I understand how fucking difficult this will be, but that's actually the work you need to do in therapy. And kudos to you for recognizing that you're doing this and you're like, maybe I need to take a break from therapy, but no, that's not actually how we'd fix this. How we would fix this is figuring out how or not even how, more like why we want to be so perfect and do things just right and what comes up for us when we can't. Now let's move into the comments on this. Excuse me. It says, as an add-on, if it's related, please ignore if it isn't. I'm sure it's related. How can we have more patience with ourselves in the process of therapy and changing our mindset regarding homework or progress towards being, towards bettering yourself? It's all about how you talk to yourself and let your therapist know that you're shit talking your progress and being like, you're not moving fast enough. And every time, so we're going to have to notice those, those reoccurring thoughts we have, which is like, you're moving too slow. This is never going to get better. Why is this taking so fucking long? Um, you're so lazy, stupid, whatever we talk, tell ourselves. I want you to pay attention to those things. And then we're going to have to use some bridge statements to move them out of like shitsville where they're at and into like decent island, like a little bit better, right? Not so shitty. So statements would be more like, you know, I am trying in therapy and I do feel like things are getting better, which by the way, you can pull your therapist in on this work and have them read you a little blurb from a session months ago and you'll see the progress or just have them reflect back on some of the things you used to work on. Again, you'll see the progress and you'll feel the difference. And so that can help keep us motivated. That can help us to see the progress we're making. But by and large, this comes out of just shit talking ourselves and being like, we're not doing enough work. We're not working hard enough. We're not blah, 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 blah. You know, all of that. Don't allow, that, allow those thoughts just to hang out in your head rent-free. Challenge them. Pay attention to them. Argue back. You got this. Okay. Now this second uh, comment says, yes. And how do you know? So they're saying yes to that first question. And how do you know if you're just growing attached to being in therapy? It feels so good to be seen and heard and empathized with as I don't have much of it in my personal life. I'm doing a lot better right now, but I keep battling ending or continuing. I now know I, um, I don't only have to go when I'm falling apart, but I feel like I should be, I should just rough it out. Hmm. I wonder why. I'd be curious about that. 
I also feel like I fall apart when I'm not in therapy because there's no one to do it for massive people pleaser. Um, oh, there's no one to do it for. I see. I do the work in therapy because shamefully, I want to make my therapist happy, even if the work is good for me. Interesting. This again, kind of to the beginning, that first part of the question, this is the work you should be doing in therapy is talking about being a people pleaser and talking about how it feels so good to be seen and heard, which is healing and which is why therapy is wonderful and beneficial. And I don't think you're done with it yet. Um, but I think there might be a little bit of attachment in there. So you're, you know, you're growing attached. I believe that that is happening. That's fine. It's kind of normal. It happens to all of us. And I think it's like part of the therapy process for a lot of people. Okay. But we need to let our therapists know about this and we need to tell them about the people pleaserness and how we can only, for some reason, only seem to want to work on ourselves to please them, not because it benefits us, even though that's a nice side effect, right? And we need to dig into that. Where does that come from? I think I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if you have some past trauma, because this sounds like a shame symptom. I'm not good enough. I'm not, something's wrong with me. I'm not worth the effort, but my therapist is worth the effort and that relationship is worth the effort, right? We have, there's some belief about ourselves and the fact that maybe we just aren't enough of a motivator to get better. I'm very curious about that. I really, yeah, I really want you to dig into that and let me know what you come up with because I think that's the work in therapy is managing this people pleasing, figuring out where it comes from, it might be noticing those nasty thoughts and maybe talking back with a couple of bridge statements. And then, you know, some of that attachment stuff, like, where is this coming from? Is there a inner child work kind of thing we should be doing? Does younger you finally feel heard and seen? And that's what's so healing. Can we really tap into that and, and experience that fully? Hmm. What would that be like? Those are my thoughts about that, but stick with it. As far as I know, you should not be quitting therapy. That's just what you should be focusing on. And the first person who asked the question too, you should not be ending therapy. You should be working on that like perfectionistic need to like do things just right. Okay. I think it comes out of like uh, a faux sense of control. F-A-U-X meaning fake. Okay. Question number six it says, hi, Katie. How do I tell my therapist I'm missing something in therapy? I've been struggling with my mental health, mostly burnout and anxiety for a while. I've been seeing my doctor monthly so he can check up on me. He's very supportive and reassuring. I always leave his office with the feeling that there's nothing wrong with me and that I will get through this. Since April, I've been having weekly sessions with a therapist as well. I know I can't expect him to be like my doctor. Hmm. That's usually the reverse. That's interesting. But I'm missing some encouragement from him. Although I don't think I've made a lot of progress, I'm definitely doing my best, but it goes unnoticed. I need my therapist to be openly supportive and encouraging. Can I expect this? Or am I comparing him too much to my doctor? Is it just my inner child seeking validation and positive attention? I hate to admit that I really miss this during our sessions. Can I bring this up with my therapist? Of course you can. I'm worried I'll be attacking his personality. What are your thoughts or do you have any tips? I hope this makes any sense at all. Thank you for everything you do. Of course. That's a great question. Now, 
it's funny because I usually hear the reverse from my patients, like the doctor that they see, psychiatrist, regular doctor, just is not supportive or encouraging. So at least you have one member of your treatment team that is supportive and encouraging. And okay, first of all, 100% you can bring this up with your therapist. You can let them know, hey, I have this doctor that I really like. And they probably already know because I'd assume you've let them know who your doctor is and they maybe have talked. I don't know. But you can say the one thing that I really appreciate about him most is that he's really supportive and encouraging and makes me feel like, you know, things will get better and that, you know, there's nothing really innately wrong with me, which is really good to help me when I'm trying to challenge some of my negative thoughts. Um, and I was wondering, this is how you could say it, I was wondering if you could do a little bit more of that in therapy. I don't always feel so, you know, supported or encouraged. And so if you could maybe add in some more of that language, that would be really helpful for me in my process. Now, I know a lot of you are like, well, fuck it, Katie, I can't say that. That just seems too scary. We have to advocate for ourselves and speak up for ourselves because if we don't, no one else can do it. And yes, I know it's uncomfortable. And you know, you guys know when we're going to say something we're uncomfortable about, what do we do? We practice ahead of time. We write out some bullet points. We say it out loud in front of the mirror or to a friend and we role play it. We say it as much as we can, as many times as we can until it doesn't feel so scary and we feel able to do it in our next session. So that would be my encouragement for you. Now, if your therapist isn't able to do that or if that's just not, if they're like, that's not how I do things. I give you full permission to find another therapist because that would, to me, that would say that this is not a good fit because if we're looking for more encouragement and support and our therapist is like, oh, that's not how I do things. Like, cause I even have some colleagues of mine that I work with where they're like, oh, that's just, that's not my style of therapy. They have to find the encouragement and support from within. And I'm like, oh, okay. I don't, I don't agree with that. That's not my style. Right. But that doesn't mean it won't be healing and helpful for someone else. So you can give them a chance and you have to give them a chance. I encourage you. It's good to practice communication. It's good to practice advocating for ourselves. And this is a safe place to do it. So if we bring it up, if they respond poorly or don't change anything, I give you permission to find someone else. But please speak up. Please let them know because you're not attacking his personality. It's something to do with the style of therapy or how he is. And you're letting him know what you need. And as a therapist, trust me, I've had tons of patients that are like, I don't really do well with homework. Can we do homework together? And I'm like, sure, in session. Yeah, okay, you want to take the last 20 minutes to do homework? And you're like, yes, please. I'm like, perfect. I can I can adjust. I, it's not supposed to be me super, being super rigid and not able to make it work for you. And so I would, I would assume your therapist thinks the same. Just because I like to do something a certain way doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. And it's part of our job to be adaptive and support, you, you know, do, do the things we can to get you where you need to go, okay? There was a comment on this and said, on a related note, how do you know when you're comparing your therapist to another therapist or a doctor because of your perfectionism? Um, nothing ever being good enough or because someone would actually be a better fit. Hmm. Also, what if you tell your therapist you're missing something, but they interpret it, interpret it as transference or you wanting to repeat old patterns? That's interesting. I want my therapist to push and challenge me more, but she always says she won't because that would be reinforcing my perfectionistic tendencies to always overexert myself. Interesting. Okay. So um, how do you know when you're comparing your therapist to another therapist or doctor if you're doing that? I mean, do you, do you look at them and think, I wish they did X, Y, Z like so-and-so did? Is that what we're looking at? Are we always referencing back? I wish you did what this person did. 
Also, I'd be very curious, did that other person that you're comparing them to, were they that much better? And what was it about them that you liked more? Should we try to seek that out in our next therapist or doctor? There's nothing wrong with having a preferred type of person that we want to see. Like I've said over and over again, I prefer as a, like when I'm looking for a therapist, which I'm in the process of doing right now, don't you guys worry. Um, I need it to be an older than me woman. How much older? Mm, at least five years. Not, not a big deal. Older woman. She needs to be a little bit kind of hippy dippy and I need a little tough love. I need her to like tell me when I'm doing things, be like, hey, 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 you know, I need some of that like stern reminder. Okay. Now, if I all of a sudden found myself with someone who was like super businessy, like showed up in like a blazer and like was just too, too professional for me, that was, it might not work. Okay. And I'd be comparing them to like Jana or Rebecca or like my old therapist that I love for many moons. I'd look back and be like, oh, I wish they were. And that's how I would know I'm doing it. Right. I'm like, oh, I wish they were doing this. But that doesn't mean that I can't not see that professional person and instead try to find someone similar to the Rebecca's or Jana's in the world. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So if you find yourself doing that a lot, I, there's nothing wrong with you seeing someone that you like more period. Okay. It's your treatment. You should be able to get the right treatment. Now, the interesting thing about your therapist saying you're repeating old patterns and reinforcing the perfectionistic tendencies, kind of going back to what I answered in another question about that perfectionistic urge, I would be curious, like what comes up for you when you can't do everything just right? Again, I might have homework for you to show up to your therapy session a little late. How late? I don't know. You tell me, but late. And I want you to let me know what comes up and how you feel with that. And if your therapist did give you homework, I mean, again, this therapist is not going to push you because she knows you're doing this, which I kind of encourage because it seems like you might, you might be doing kind of what I did. So yeah, um, I would start journaling or at least talking with your therapist about what's coming up for you. Because my guess is it's a ton of irritability and frustration which if you didn't realize those kinds of emotions are actually secondary. So what's really happening beneath that? I could hypothesize that it's feeling a little bit vulnerable, a little bit out of control. Maybe I feel uh, just this internal anxiety. I don't know, but dig in. I'm very curious because it's interesting for those of us who are perfectionists, when someone won't allow us to do the thing we want to do, it's almost like we're trying to do this dance, right? And we, we know all the moves and we're doing this dance. Maybe it's the Macarena. Okay. So we're doing the Macarena, but our therapist keeps swatting our hands away. And she's like, you can't do that anymore. It's not serving you. Stop doing the Macarena. Instead, I want you to do the disco, you know, let's do this. And you're like, no, so what comes up for you when you cannot do that Macarena, when you can't be perfectionistic and be pushed and challenged so that you're like, I am overcoming. Hmm. What if we just had to sit with how we are now? Hmm. That sounds uncomfortable. I'm curious about that. And I would like for you to write about what is coming up for you now and maybe why the, and I'm guessing here, I don't know if this is how you feel, but maybe the frustration or the irritability or the vulnerability or a little anxiety, like what is it and why do we think it's coming up for us? Let me know. Let me know what you find out. I'm very interested. Okay. 
Let's move on to question number seven. And if you're watching this and you wonder, something is tickling my arm and it keeps itching me. And I was like, is it a bug? Don't worry. It's not. I have assessed my environment. There's nothing here. <laughs> okay. Question number seven. It says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Why is it terrifying to be cared for? It's a great question. A few years ago, a car crashed into the store where I worked. I was able to jump out of the way, but was hit by a desk and sent flying through a wall. Everyone else was fine and I was able to walk out of there. I downplayed how hurt I was because it didn't seem that bad compared to how I almost died. When I finally did go to the ER later that day, it was terrifying. Not at first, but when I was wheeled into a room and everyone looked at me, my heart stopped. A car, a car barreling at me? No problem. But a room full of people who just want to help me? Oh, heck no. All I know is an alarm was blaring in my brain and I wanted to get out of there. But the weird thing was that it also felt really nice to be taken care of. Hmm. So much that it ached. And now looking back, it makes me really angry because I feel like I robbed myself somehow. Like it would have been okay to admit how injured I was. Like I had a chance to be seen and I missed it. Why am I like this? I feel like there's something so wrong with me. Either way, thank you so much for your videos. They brought me so much comfort over the years. Please take care of yourself and lots of love to you and yours. Oh, thank you. Um, and I'm so glad that they've been helpful. This is a great question. And the truth about it is that if we, and not, not to jump to conclusions, but I have a feeling that we have some attachment issues that have to be dealt with either because A, our parent was not around and abuse via neglect, or our parent was there and there was abuse via emotional neglect, like they just didn't show up for us or care for us in the way that we needed, okay? Or there could be, you know, actual physical, sexual, emotional abuse in another way. There's some kind of attachment issue we've got. And it doesn't mean it always comes out of actual overt abuse, but there's something. And I would be very curious about that. And I would want to dig into it because here's where I'm good getting at. When we want to be cared for and it feels so good yet it's terrifying and overwhelming at the same time i would call that kind of a i don't know either anxious avoidant attachment style or potentially disorganized and i guess maybe not disorganized because it sounds more planned than that um but either way there's some kind of unhealthy attachment that we have because when we were growing up we either weren't cared for in the way that we wanted or we weren't cared for at all. And so the thought of letting someone do that for us is A, super uncomfortable because it's not something that we we know of or have any experience with, and B, makes us worry that we could be hurt more, right? Especially if we were abused. So if our parent came and cared for us sometimes and then other times, you know, smacked us around or whatever, we weren't sure which version we were going to get. And so the thought of someone caring for us can be really difficult. And the reason I believe there's a trauma in the past or some kind of abuse is because that shame is, I like feel it in this question. The shame is just like palpable because it's like the thought that someone would want to care for you is too much. You're like, oh, heck no, right? So that means maybe we have these deep false beliefs of like, I'm not worth, I'm not worth it or I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I don't know. Those are just some of my hypotheses, but I would, I would be curious about it yourself because I don't want to make any assumptions about you and how you're dealing, like what, why this is coming up. 
But that could be why we downplayed it. That could be why having all those people around us, we were like, oh, this is too much. Mm -mm. I'm not worth it. Somebody else should be getting help. Like, I don't know what was going through your head so much. If it was just anxiety or if there were lots of like fleeted, like, I don't know, a flight of ideas or thoughts like flooding your system. But I would want to dig into that and I would be very curious about it. And so, yeah. And also the reason that it felt kind of good in a way and you feel like you, you know, you robbed yourself of it just shows how much we actually need it. And I would encourage you in therapy to do some of that inner child work where maybe you do, I don't know, it sounds like they might've looked you over and figured out that you're okay or you got whatever treated. But if not, if you like rush yourself out of there, part of your healing could be going back and telling them all that happened and what you're going through and letting them spend their time checking things out and taking care of you and then writing about how that feels. And then maybe there's like a couple of words of validation or phrases of validation we could offer, meaning things I could say to myself, like it felt good to care for myself and allow others to do the same. Hmm. That could be something I repeat, or I could repeat, I'm open to believing that everyone is worth love and care, including me. I'm open to it. I don't know if I believe it, but it's possible. I don't know. We need to have a couple phrases that can be a little bit more healing, a little bit more loving, a little bit more care filled. But those are kind of my thoughts about like why this is happening. Cause the question was like, why am I like this? Um, yeah. Keep me posted. Let me know what you dig up. And then the comment on this question said, and what if you feel like you don't really deserve being cared for and believe others shouldn't spend time with you or invite you for something because you're not worth it? I already answered that really. Is that only connected to low confidence and sense of self-worth or can there be other reasons for feeling like this as well? It could be connected to self-confidence. I think it's deeper than that. Self-confidence and self-worth are usually um, a lack of those. Oh, sorry, itchy pod nose. A lack of those are born out of shame and embarrassment or guilt, all of which can come from trauma or can come from you know issues with anxiety or depression. But again, I really, that that, uh, that early attachment stuff. I'm very interested in that. And I think that answers both parts of that question. So let's move on to question number eight. It says, hi, Katie. I was wondering if you have heard stories of people ending friendships or relationships around their negative views around mental health. Hmm. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine was making fun of a celebrity who took their own life. Ooh. The worst part of it was my friend was close to someone who committed suicide. So you would think they were more sensitive around the subject. Yeah, you would think. I wanted to explain that suicide is complex and I don't want, and I wanted to tell her my story that I was contemplating suicide, but I didn't because I wanted to be there for their wedding. And that was taking place two weeks later. Recently, their views on mental health have gotten more negative. Uh, I wonder if they're struggling. And though they don't know about my mental health status, I feel those negative comments are an attack on me. Anybody else in the same boat? Ooh, sorry. Sometimes when I get too close to the microphone, the vibrations tickle my nose. Okay, this is a great question. And I have heard of stories from our community of people going through the same thing. And unfortunately, I think it is okay to end a friendship or relationship because of this. 
But I would encourage, and again, it's just encouraging. It doesn't mean you have to do it. And there's no real pressure because it's not up to us to educate people when there's so much information in the world. It's like, get your shit together. What's wrong with you? People talk about mental health all the time now. Thank God. In the past 10 years of me being online, it's gone from like, what? You're talking about this publicly? Oh my God. Like, I don't want anybody to know that I talk about this to celebrities telling people that they had suicidal thoughts. And so they're putting themselves into treatment, which is beautiful and amazing. And I want that. I want there to be more of that. Now, I would let them know if you feel safe. Again, you don't have to, but we can give them an opportunity to let us know because I suspect it could be wrong. I suspect they're having their own trouble. And so instead of admitting that they feel like shit and that their life is deteriorating or their mental health is taking a downturn, they're going to put it onto someone else and like, ha ha ha, make fun of that. People do that all the time. It's, um, it just can feel safer to, instead of identify and acknowledge to, you know, distract by pretending at someone else. And I'm forgetting that there's a word for it and I'm forgetting what it's called, but it's like, you know, like deflection, I think probably works, but it's not the one I was thinking of. But anyway, um, people doing that tends to mean they're having a shit time themselves. So if you feel safe and you feel it's okay for you, again, this is for you, not for them. I would let them know before you end the relationship, I would say something to the effect of even when they're making fun of someone, right? That was an opportunity making fun of a celebrity that took their own life. I would say something to the effect of, you know, we like you had a friend even that already like took their own life. So I would say something like, you know, we did have our friend, I'm just going to make up a name. Let's say Lily, our friend Lily took her own life. And I would think you'd be more sensitive to that because you know how dark that can get for people. Um, and you know, you don't have to share all your own stuff. You could just say, I know how dark that can get for people. And I don't think it's really appropriate to make fun of it. I understand if you're having a hard time and it helps for you to laugh at this, but I don't really like to laugh at stuff like this. Or you could say something to the effect of, you know, um, when you've, when you make remarks about people's mental health, I've, I've struggled with my own issues and it makes it hard for me to want to be around you. I feel very judged. Yes, I know those are things. It's uncomfortable and we're putting it, we're putting it out there. And by putting it out there, we are in essence requiring a response. Now they may not respond or they may respond poorly and be like, get over yourself. Who knows what the fuck they'll say, but we can give them an opportunity to rise to the occasion. I always like to do that. It doesn't mean it will go well. Trust me in my life. I've given people plenty of times to rise to the occasion and they haven't, or I'm sure other people have given me a chance and I haven't, right? We all do our best, but it's not always good enough. And in particular, I can think of a friend of mine that I got together with before we, I decided like the relationship wasn't worth it and gave her an opportunity to apologize as I apologize for my part in it. And she could not, she did not. She's un- incapable of apologizing for her part in upset and pain. And that was too much for me, but you have to give them a, ch- I mean, you don't have to, but I like to give them a chance because it's good practice for me communicating my own upset and my own needs so that if the relationship is to continue, that's been stated. So I'm not dancing around their inability to be a fucking human and recognize people have mental health issues. And that's not something to make, like to make light of, right? We all know suicidality and suicidal thoughts are like, God, they're so fucking heavy and they snuff out any light or hope we had for the future. And the least we can ask of those in our life is just to not, if they can't be compassionate about it, don't fucking talk about it then. Easy. Problem solved. Don't be an idiot, right? So yeah, I'd like to give them an opportunity 
Um, because of course you feel like those negative comments are an attack on you because you've gone through gone gone through it too. Yeah. But I mean, I like to give people again, like I said, I like to give them a chance to like make it right or to acknowledge because my hypothesis is that I think they're having a shitty time and that's why they're deciding to make fun of other people who maybe are in more pain than them or in the same amount of pain. I don't even know. I just find that we like to do things like we like to put out to other people and like spine other people when we feel like shit. That's why like negative comments online just kind of make me laugh. And then I feel bad for the person because I'm like, wow, of all the time you have in the day, you decide to spend the time to shit on someone else. You must feel real bad that I'm sorry that you feel so bad. Right. And so anyway, those are my thoughts. I'm sorry this is happening. And I give you full permission to end that relationship if it's not, if it's no longer serving you. Okay. Moving on to question number nine says, hi, Katie, is it normal to feel like my struggles with mental illness are immature and childish? I've struggled with depression and anxiety since I was about 12. And with the social anxiety specifically, my dad would get angry um, and say that I was being immature and selfish. Wow. Talk about not understanding mental illness. So I feel that, um, so I feel like that could have a lot to do with why I now as an adult feel immature for struggling with mental illnesses. Yeah, I would say that. Um, but it makes it incredibly hard to be vulnerable with people because my struggles feel wrong. Also because of all the fear and shame about struggling, I feel super emotionally unavailable in all of my relationships. I don't ever cry around people. I don't express fear or pain except through humor. No, that's your defense mechanism. So how do I work to be more emotionally, be a more emotionally available person? I would get into therapy. And if you're in therapy, I would talk about this because what your dad did is essentially emotional abuse. Um, and I'm not trying to be exact. I'm not exaggerating. It's emotional abuse. And it's caused this belief in you that mental illness is somehow immature, which is honestly a very ignorant statement from your father to believe that a mental illness, first of all, is a something that we choose to have happen, meaning that selfish component. Yeah, like like I choose to have depression or anxiety, you goddamn idiot. Or that uh, mental illnesses are things you like grow out of. Like that it's something only children struggle with. Therefore, at 12, you were being immature. Like what do you think? Like after eight, you can't have a mental... That doesn't even make any sense. It's all ignorant. But that is what has helped form this false belief that by having a mental illness, you're somehow selfish and immature and there's like there's something wrong with you like why are you doing this as if you have a choice like that that false belief is like gonna have to be dug into and challenged with facts and that's something you can kind of do yourself when you notice yourself doing participating in certain I don't know ways of communicating or ways of navigating relationships that just feed back into this like I'm selfish I'm immature thought process we're going to have to challenge it by saying, I know a lot of people in, in my community, I'm sure if you get in the Facebook group or even in the comments below, all of us of all different ages have struggled with mental illnesses at all different times. Even personally, I had about a, about a depression when I was 15 or 16. So I was way older than 12. So ha ha ha, suck it, your dad, stick that in your pipe and smoke it, right? And I wasn't immature and I wasn't selfish. I was just having a hard time. And I don't even know what prompted it if I think back. But again, there's not always a triggering event when it comes to mental illness. Ta-da! It can just happen. And so, yeah, so I just want to put that out there. I think my um, 
my challenge for you would be to get into therapy if you're not already and start talking about this because the only way to change these beliefs that have been implanted into us and like drilled into us by an unhealthy, unhelpful, emotionally abusive parent is to, as an adult, care for ourselves, challenge that belief little by little and not allow those thoughts to continue hanging out without them being challenged. And yes, I know this is tedious and yes, I know it's hard work, but you're worth it. And I'm sorry that your dad did this to you. It just, it's so frustrating to me because what this, what this does is then it causes us to feel alone with our pain and struggles instead of free to, to talk about it, like you said, and to be vulnerable and emotionally available to people, which could be incredibly healing. And so I believe in therapy will be the best place to start untangling this and acknowledging that like being vulnerable or emotionally available is really difficult for you because even doing that makes you think you're being selfish and immature and those aren't things you want to be. So you're like, let's hold it together, even though we all know that's impossible to do. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Find a therapist you connect with and it'll, it can be slow going. It's not going to be like A to B to C to D. We're all better. Poof. But I think healing from that. Also, you may even find like EMDR to be helpful because again, what your dad did was emotional abuse. And I know it might be hard to hear that or accept that, but if you just need to have it so you can hear it and slowly maybe try to believe it, you can replay this podcast and replay that because that is what it is. What your dad did was emotional abuse. And that is why we're struggling so much right now is because the shame spiral that was created through that trauma is causing us to think that something's wrong with us and that even having a difficult time means these certain things that it doesn't mean, but we don't have any other reference point and no other evidence to support a different way of thinking. And so what therapy will help in the healing process and what that will do is help gather facts and information to support that other way of thinking, the way of thinking that acknowledges that mental illnesses happen and that we all have our struggles and that it isn't something we choose and it's not something that's done at a certain age and then we grow out of it or whatever. I always hate people say, oh, but you'll grow out of it. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, that's, that's why therapy will be so healing, help you gather some of that information that can be so helpful. Okay. It'll get better. Let's move on to our final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, how common is it to be victimized two times? I was molested as a child and then my ex raped me. She knew about my brother molesting me as a child. However, she still chose to do what she did. It's hard to trust anyone, even my own therapist. How do I trust again? Also, how do I stop feeling like I have a sign over my head saying easy target or come get me? I won't tell anyone. I never told anyone about my horrible experiences, which is another question I have. I knew how much pain I was in with my brother getting away with what he did, but I still chose to keep quiet about my ex. Why is that? Thank you for all you do, Katie. You really helped me more than you know. Oh, I'm so glad I could be there for you. Okay. I talk about this a lot in my book because a lot of people feel that way. Like you have a sign that's like, please hurt me. I won't say anything. Don't worry. Send the trauma my way, right? We can feel like a fly strip for like traumatizing experiences. And it's very, very common, and here's why. When we are traumatized, it, we've talked about how often it leads to shame, embarrassment, and guilt, right? Those are very, very common, and we can get caught in those spirals of them. And what that starts to tell us is that we only do things wrong, we always make the bad decision, and something's innately broken inside of us, which means 
that we don't form or we aren't able to, especially when this happens in childhood, we aren't able to develop a, a healthy intuition because we felt like, hey, I trusted this person and they hurt me, right? So now I, I can't really trust my judgment because I trusted them and they hurt me. So instead, what we end up doing is we don't feel like we can trust ourselves. And so we can feel like we're out in the world, unable to make decisions on our own that we can actually like stick behind and do. And so we'll let other people make some of those choices for us. A lot of times we can look out to other people and be like, hey, I'll let them decide what's best for me because I, I obviously can't, right? I have all this proof that I can't. So I'm going to let them decide. And we can find ourselves being influenced by people who aren't that good for us. And that could mean that we do things that are really risky. We get in situations where we're harmed. I would argue that probably your ex was a very toxic and abusive person in general because no one that isn't that way would do what they did to you. And, and so that's kind of why that happens. There's another component too. So the second part of this is that when we've been raised in a situation where someone who's supposed to be loving to us, like a, your brother, right? He's a member of your family, your siblings, you're supposed to be caring and loving to each other. And I mean, even though my brother and I like had our disagreements, and I'm sure everybody has that with their siblings, you they're still part of your family, you know, like I could call my brother and count on him for things. And you probably felt the same. So we grow up with this very unhealthy relationship. And I, I'd be curious who abused your brother, because usually children who abuse children were abused themselves, not all the time, but most of the time. So I'm curious what happened to him. But anyways, that dysfunction and that abusive or toxic style of relationship can feel really comfortable. And that's why we can end up in those situations again, because whether we recognize it or not, the situation with which we grew up in is kind of like our blueprint for life. And so we can take that blueprint out into the world and look for others that look similar. And we're like, huh, hmm, this one looks just like this one. I'm going to get into that relationship, feel very comfortable. I know exactly how to act in that because I've been doing it for my whole life so far, right? And that's why breaking those patterns and getting into therapy to heal can be really uncomfortable even in my own personal therapy, like I was not abused as a child, but even trying to break out of patterns of relationships that weren't healthy for me, that weren't serving me well, was really hard because I'd been doing it for so long, right? And my people-pleasing behavior is very uncomfortable um, for me, but it's also uncomfortable to stop, right? And so there, I just want you to know that it's going to feel uncomfortable, but that's actually kind of good. And in order to make change, we have to be uncomfortable. And so it's really those two reasons that I feel that we often, those of us who have been abused as children, tend to encounter other situations where abuse or trauma occurs. Now, it's not all the time. And I want you to know that the sooner we get help, the better. Like if children, hopefully things are changing in our world where, you know, there's more access to resources for kids in school, potentially, because that's where we spend most of our time, right? Where we can get some support and attention and hopefully some healing so that we don't go out into the world and end up being traumatized again. But those are just the, the, the two that I see the most for kind of the quote unquote reason why we could be in traumatizing situations more than once. I am so sorry this happened to you. Um, know that you can report things still. If it helps for you to do it, I encourage you to. I know that our system isn't the best and sometimes they make you re repeat all the things and talk about it in detail and that can be really traumatizing. But I'm just here to tell you that you can speak up and you can, you know, file uh, any kind of, whether you want to file a police report or not or something, you can still do that. And I encourage you to do that if that would be helpful for you. 
And yeah, so I hope that that helps kind of make sense of it. I know it's not, it's not happy information and I'm sorry that that's the case, but it can be changed. And if we are able to acknowledge what we're doing and have a therapist that we can check in with and everything, I go into it in my book a lot about like how we can make sure this doesn't happen again, how we can break the cycle. Um, I want to say it's like, cause I just did the audiobook. It's like chapter like 13 or 14, but it does get better. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to share this podcast with those you love. Make sure to give it reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Offer reviews. Five-star reviews, please. Pretty please. Um, Yeah, I hope it was helpful. Thank you so much for your questions. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do something nice for yourself. You deserve it. I'll see you next time. Okay? Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those 